Welcome to Beyond BIM. In today's episode, we dive deeper into the field of architecture. I sat down to discuss the state of architecture with Laurie Chetwood. Laurie is an innovative artist and designer. He has both colorful ideas and a radical vision for architecture. I have had the personal pleasure of working with Laurie in my own career and have always known him to follow not the traditional route when it comes to thinking about design and its impact on human well-being. He believes in questioning convention and taking risk, as well as embracing creative adventures that combines the concepts of sustainability and the impact on human well-being. And specifically, that by unleashing the unexpected and pushing what's possible, true advances in the architectural field can be made. But as we know, for many architects, this might not always be as straightforward to implement. Architects on a whole have received both praise and much criticism. More recently, perhaps a more unified voice of praise than true criticism. We discuss contentious topics such as whether beauty really is in the eye of the beholder when it comes to architecture. Laurie reminds us that now is the time for creative risk-taking in architecture. Timing is everything with risk, and perhaps now is the time to embrace human responsiveness and well-being in spaces. To hear more on this and beyond, let's listen to what Laurie has to say on the state of architecture and the much-needed shift in the architectural creative process. First and foremost, could you, Laurie, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what led your career path into the world of architecture in the first place? Yeah, sure. I'm an architect. Um, I own a practice which has been going for about 30 years or so. Um, and originally, I was heavily into art. I, um, I enjoyed art and I enjoyed the freedom it gave and everything else. Unfortunately, <laughs> when I suggested art, to my dad, who was a dyed-in-the-wool contractor, building contractor, he, he was vaguely horrified that I might become an artist and suddenly switched to me, uh, uh, suggesting to me that I should be an architect. Um, interesting that he'd actually sort of said how awful architects were throughout my childhood and the fact he had to deal with them from on a daily basis. I found that a little ironic. But um, uh, so it was really, I was steered away from art and um, towards architecture, but I've never really lost the desire to, to bring more art into my architecture. And um, I've, um, I, I sort of, <laughs> I wonder whether I, perhaps I should have stuck with art Sometimes <laughs> in this profession, it's one of the most frustrating professions. Or an artist, you mean? Well, I th- an artist, you see, has this sort of freedom. Uh, okay, people might not like what you do, but but you have it's down to you. Uh, you can do things with impunity, and it sort of it just uh, happens. You haven't got hundreds of stakeholders telling you what to do or suggesting what you should do. Um, particularly unqualified stakeholders drive me mad um, in architecture. Whereas with art, you know, if you don't like it, t- tough really. Um, I-, I like it, and and that's it. And uh, you don't quite have the same freedom in architecture. So I come from that art background to answer the question, and. Um, uh, I'm trying desperately to get some of that art into architecture, um, which I think it's it sort of sadly misses at the moment. Now, you mentioned that, obviously, 
you were pulled by the side of art. What was it about, you mentioned freedom, but what were the aspects that really drew you into the artistic and creative side? Well, I think I think it's a natural thing. A lot of people say, um, oh, I can't draw or I can't paint. I, I don't think it is that. I think the actual art or the act of art or drawing or painting is practice, actually. Um, I don't think anybody's better or worse than that. It's just that when you're young, if you like it, you do it more often and therefore you get better at it. And it's almost the same with anything. Um, uh, you, obviously, the ideas that come with it are something you're, you're born with almost, an instinctive idea. But but technically, it's easier to do something if you've done it a lot. And, and literally, when you're a young kid, you, you're obviously drawn to certain things that interest you and uh, art is something I've always done and and it and it's a sort of it's inherent that particular desire to do it I think that that's where it comes from but it is a practice thing and then it's ideas after that but uh, that's where where I've got it I think um, both my grandfather and my father actually although he was a contractor were very good at art and I suppose it comes through in the genes eventually. So you then transitioned into your professional career, which was in architectural domain. So if you were to describe your approach to architecture, do you have a singular approach that underscores your work? So you often embrace inspiration from nature and beauty. Could you explain further this type of approach in your work? And are there any other singular methods that you try and stick with? Yeah, I, I sort of quite, I like the natural history side of things, always have outside architecture. So I always used to watch natural history programs, I was interested in birds and all that sort of thing. And it's sort of that particular natural organic side of things has really interested me. And, and on, the, on the converse side, I don't really like the intellectual, dogmatic, formulaic approach to architecture. I, I think it's been great for a certain length of time uh, socially, it was necessary uh, at the end of the last century, but I'm talking about the, uh, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, but it it doesn't, for me, appeal to the human nature or human spirit. I, li- I like things that are, are natural and things that the human being desires. I, I think, to some extent, the public have sort of been left out of the architectural debate and they're sort of having to put up with whatever we produce um, almost inured to the fact that um, uh, you get you get architecture sort of given to you and imposed upon you where I think people should it's a bit of a contradiction really because I, you know too many people getting involved in in too many solutions sometimes becomes counterproductive but we should be taking into account what people truly want and I think that for me is more about human nature human spirit than some sort of dogmatic formula that that we all seem to have been touting for the last hundred years or so um it's an intellectualized idea which i think lacks that 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 warmth that human that that need for the human nature and human spirit as a content so the projects that you've worked on till now can you give us some examples of your most fond projects that embrace this type of approach that you've just described one that is um, responsive to the human needs one that embraces nature do you know why i think um, we're a commercial practice uh, we're responsible for keeping uh, livelihoods going after a certain time we were set up in a time when 
the economics of the situation, i.e. there was a slump at the time, um, we we needed to, to get something on the table for families and everything else. And it turned into a commercial outfit. So a lot of what we do is, is making sure that we're doing things efficiently, on time, to the right budget. So there aren't many things I can honestly put my hand up and say, Laurie, you've, you have followed the principles of, of uh, your original ideas, which are instinctive and um, more to do with the hum- human spirit. There aren't many. I suppose the main one would be actually the house that we built for ourselves as a family uh, in Dunsfold, the Butterfly House, it it just shows you actually that that if you're in control of the project um, to some extent, you've reduced the number of stakeholders and you are able to do something that truly you stand for. That was the one that, that really stood out for me. Um, it, it has all the ingredients for a young family to be brought up in. It was fun. It was uh, all about the life cycle of a butterfly. So it had the more natural sort of side of things that I was quite interested in. And it was experimental. So it was it was definitely not formulaic. It was trying to push the boundaries of, of design in a certain particular way from the furniture that we had inside the house to the, to the exterior. And uh, that was probably probably one of the few things where I thought well actually that is me um, and uh, uh, most of the other schemes are, are going to be distorted by money and all the other things I've already mentioned is sort of more practical things so um, yeah that's probably the best one I can think of. Well that would be the butterfly house. Yes yes it's oh. sort of it's an existing house that was built in the for the ideal home exhibition funnily enough as an ex uh, sort of exhibition uh, kit building for the ideal home exhibition before the second world war all timber cedar and it was built rebuilt out in in surrey for a family to live in in the summer i think um and we weren't allowed to to knock it down so it's on a nice piece of land uh, looking over the sussex border and it it's um we we altered it uh, in such a way as to obviously preserve the building, but then put a, a, a lot of other things around it. So there were, and it was all according to the the life cycle of butterflies. So arrival was the sort of very early stages of pupa and eggs and so forth. And then you got in through to the middle of the house, a chrysalis type situation. So some of the hanging furniture with these chrysalis type forms. And then there's an explosion of energy right in the heart of the of the building, which, which was then... Um, epitomized by this huge wing on the front which kept the the sun off uh the southern facing elevation and that opened and shut um it was able to open and shut and it was a sort of um it was great because it was completely different at the time it was the early 2000s and it certainly wasn't a formulaic sort of boiled dry modernist idea it was much more organic and um it did frighten the neighbors to some extent um but uh generally it went down pretty well um it won a few awards and a few plaudits although it was different and uh, we're looking at it again funnily enough as a, as a play we've still got the place and we're now looking at it a completely different way whereby the architecture disappears mm. and uh, we reform this for as a sort of refuge hopefully for people to go there and repair or 
make of it what they will. And the architecture itself it disappears, becomes anonymous almost, so that so that it doesn't impose itself on people who go and live and work and play there. Um, it leaves the human being to uh, to work out what is there rather than. Uh, rather than have some some architect coming along with a bit of an ego, which I admit that was a bit of an ego building originally, um, rather than having somebody impose the architecture on on one, you actually get this uh, this space which you can now decide what you make of it. That that's the plan anyway. You mentioned that the original Butterfly House was built in two thousand. Now, if you compare that time to where we are now. Do you think there's more of an appetite for these types of experimental spaces or less so? I, th- I think it is becoming more experimental at long last. Um, I still worry that um, if you put a, a sort of a really good piece of um, modern architecture on the front po- uh, cover of a 1930s magazine, that you wouldn't really tell the difference. In other words, what was being done in the 30s, say for a house, could easily be represented on a magazine today and people wouldn't bat an eyelid. If you put a 1930s car on a, a magazine cover, uh, you'd be thinking you were looking at a classic car mag. So it's a sort of, I think architecture is sort of, it's a bit behind the times. And I, I think people are beginning, certainly the younger practitioners are beginning to come up with much more experimental stuff. But of course, and I think we need to sort of get away from that horrible uh, time and money sort of cycle. And I think it is beginning to change largely because there are a couple of drivers that are pushing it this way. I think well-being is a big one. And also um, the environmental arguments are becoming quite important. So I think those two elements will drive uh, clients and developers and local authorities to to start embracing slightly more experimental ideas which change the course of the normal route, which I maintain a lot of architecture is what I would call lazy architecture. It's so easy to do a very rectilinear modernist approach, which without much thought, we know it's going to be cheap or more cost effective as it stands at the moment. And we know people are going to uh, think it's quick. Um, it probably is. Um, and, and that has always been a bit of an impasse, I think, in why people, uh, why architects should take into account people more than the project managers of this world we as architects should start considering people and well-being and the environment and hopefully by pushing ideas further in that direction developers and everybody else will begin to embrace that more readily we have a responsibility in other words so these two areas that you just covered which is well-being and sustainability do you think these two can work in harmony or do you see that perhaps in one instance for example sustainability might limit the ability to be creative and playful in a way that does have an impact on well-being yes there is a a good point there there is a worthiness about uh sustainability and it's almost as though you've got to suffer to 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 actually be sustainable i I don't think it's necessarily true um I think there are plenty of reasons why you can make that fun and enjoyable. Um, and I, I think beating everybody up and, and almost wagging the finger isn't the right way to do this. So I, I agree with you on that. Um, I think, and the well-being thing is is sort of similar. 
Um, uh, if you follow the rules that you're just simply getting people to engage, to collaborate, to enjoy, the well-being part is a sort of is is quite a good one to look at. And I, I think the psychology of of the briefs that we get aren't good enough. Often, you're not really exploring the subject well enough. You've got to really go into quite a lot of detail and depth before you start designing. I think these days, if you're going to take people into account, and you did mention a little bit about style and how architectural style these days doesn't really seem to follow the pace as, as what we're seeing in other sectors. Um, yeah. Do you think that in architecture, beauty is still in the eye of the beholder? Well, I've, I've got a, yes, it's one of my beefs, actually. Uh, beauty, you know, is in the eye of the beholder up to a certain point. You could probably, in my opinion, say 60% of the things are naturally beautiful and, and, and you could say a fair proportion are naturally ugly. Um, and then there are people who find beauty and ugliness and ugly beauty and all that sort of stuff. But generally speaking, most think most people, most human beings would say that's lovely and that's that's not lovely. And therefore, I, I think there's a lot of pretentious stuff about um, uh, making something ugly look beautiful or pretend it is. And it's sort of the, I think the emperor's clothes come in here where people are pretending or intellectualizing things and saying, oh, these are brilliant. Uh, I like this mm-hmm. a lot. Um, but actually, is it, you know, and, and I think there is a website knocking out around somewhere that am I the only person thinking this? Um, you know, you know, scratch your head and you think, come off it. Crikey, but but I'm not sure if anybody ever dares to say so. And certainly, that's 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 definitely the situation with uh, architectural magazines. They quite rightly have to have to make sure that they get the right sort of material into their magazines. But it's very rare there's anything critical of anything that comes from the upper echelons of the architectural profession. It's it's always just liked, and uh, it's not always good. And and I think that's another area of concern that I think we should be a little bit more honest about some of the buildings we put up. I, I do get the impression that the public generally are inured to architecture and they just think, uh, I've just got to put up with this. That's what it is. And it's imposed upon me. And I, I just think um, we as a profession should start to take responsibility for for that and start to change things if, if we possibly can. So does that mean in one sense that the subjective experience of a building or a space may not be as subjective or personalized as one might think yeah that's what i think i think uh, often architects because we're all creative and we like to make a statement and make a mark it's often uh at the expense of the people who are actually working or living or playing in the building and i do think um it's sometimes a bit of an ego trip I, surely there's there's something in leaving the architecture as being quite passive uh, and letting somebody who's using the building make of it what they will. There must be something in that, um, a much more neutral idea that 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 await the the inhabitants rather than the other way around. You tend to turn up and ah, that's that's a very strong color that's a very strong shape this is the concept uh something that is intellectualized which it happens in a lot of areas you know it leaves the people who the very people who are using the building behind and it, it works for all the all the people who all the architects who understand how it works and maybe uh 
you know, various professors in various institutes understand, but do the people who actually go into the building understand what's going on? It's a bit like, you know, um, you get some really, really uh, contemporary classical music, which is a complete load of nonsense to most people, but people who have understood classical music for a long time and and, uh, they understand it, but it's a very narrow field. And I, I think that's sort of irresponsible in architectural terms anyway. We have to include people in our in our designs, that's for sure. Well, you've experienced the changes within the architectural industry throughout when you started out until today and what we're witnessing now. And there seems to be every now and then sort of paradigm shifts based on what's happening around us in the world. How would you describe that the architectural practices have changed over recent years in their creative approach, or would you argue that they haven't? Well, I would initially have, have answered the latter. I, I think we're stuck. But you do see this throughout history. You see certain, certainly in the arts anyway, certain things uh, sprint ahead, if you like, from others. So, you know, the 17th, 18th century, you see landscape suddenly becomes uh, important. Um, uh, and then that's since been, I, in my opinion, been in the doldrums for quite a while in the last 50 or so years. Um, architecture, you know, I think it's been stuck for about 100 years. I, I do do believe that socially it was required to have this mantra, this modernist mantra going on all the time. And uh, But it's been stuck largely because it is cheaper to, to build and it's quicker to build in a sort of rectilinear form. But it's not necessarily as relevant as it was back at the beginning of the, the, the 20th century. So I think it has been stuck. But obviously with the current climate, literally and metaphorically, you have got a change in the air. Um, first of all, I've already mentioned the environmental arguments. Think something's got to change architecturally to respond to that, and certainly clients have got to respond to do with the well-being. But obviously, with the uh, latest stuff, uh, with the virus and so forth, that's changing behaviour hugely, and and so that will have a knock-on effect through to. Uh, architecture and repurposing buildings and we know offices are going to be totally changed the way people work and the way people live and work together will be different and that's going to change that lots of different sectors we're seeing that in london at the moment uh, we've got a presentation called hidden spaces well spaces are changing all over the place you know the car is almost well, we're definitely out of favour in London. So we have a client who's got uh, multi-storey car parks that go, some of which are nine storeys down in the ground in the middle of London, and they want to change them from car parks to something completely different, dark hotels or even logistics hubs. So it's a sort of, uh, it's a practical thing that's changing, which might force force architects away from this traditional sort of modernist mantra, which has been going on for, for 100 years. I think I think practical things such as the environment and such as the virus will will push things in a different direction. And hopefully a new generation of, of architects will take up that and change change things towards human beings, towards human nature, which I keep whacking on about. You mentioned that there were limited projects that you could say where you had the creative freedom to express some of the ideas that you're interested in and that you believe architecture should begin to explore. If you could design anything for anyone, what would that be or who would that be for? I think it would be 
for me. I mean, I, it's not because I'm, I'm sort of some sort of self-centered egomaniac type of idea, it's simply because uh, you have more control over what you think is right and what, what you'd love to do. Um, and it wouldn't be actually for me. I, what I'm sort of saying is uh, I'd like to be in control of it um, because I, I, have, I trust what I'm doing and I have a particular idea and I, I feel I really have a desire to do something before I hang up my uh, hang my hat up, so to speak. Uh, for instance, the Dunfold project, we are looking at changing that to benefit other people. But if, if I wasn't in control of that project, I know that I would get tripped up somewhere along the line. These days, there are so many people involved in the process that no matter how good the idea is at the beginning, it's like a sort of ice cube. It starts off you know, with the best of intentions, even the clients are often keen on it. But as soon as you start getting stakeholders involved, or you start getting cost or time, or whatever, it, it slowly melts, and you end up with something that is is a, a fifth of what you had before. And the other issue, which I haven't really mentioned, is how many projects do architects start and aren't completed? I could imagine it's about I don't know, two or three percent actually get through. And even if they do, are they what you originally thought? So answer the question, I would like to do something for me, for, for other people, because I do believe I or we could produce something which would be a benefit to a lot of different people, but without having to have somebody else saying what to do after all we've, we've all learnt our craft over seven years and then uh, since then another 20 or 30 years it's a bit of a slow burning profession but you do get to a sweet spot i think and and that's when you should start deploying what you've got and there aren't many places or many professions where you get so many people having an influence and and putting in therefore penneth sometimes completely unqualified and and you just think you know, you just give up. I mean, the whole the whole issue is in the hands often of people who who aren't really able to make have an opinion. And I know that sounds arrogant. Obviously, there are lots of people you, you put into the equation who do, but but there are just too many people involved. Uh, you, at some point, you, to get something really truly decent, there should be some sort of autocracy, some sort of coercion going on. Otherwise, you just end up with a sort of committee led building, which is more or less what happens every time in the UK at least you, you get so many different ideas and opinions that to navigate through all that lot and preserve what you originally thought is quite a task so for me it would be for me for somebody else but I would have at least hold of purse strings and at least hold of of the program uh, go from there now if I mean based on this project that we envisage and also from your past projects that you've been a part of, how would you describe your working process and what was that like on your most satisfying projects? Years ago, I, uh, like a lot of architects, I think you get an idea in your head straight away and you start drawing if you're not careful. And I've come round to the idea that you really have to get as much of the research done and as much information down as possible before you even think about pulling the pen out. Um, call it the sort of ammunition dump of information. And this is the really joyous part of architecture for me is where you you, you spend a lot of time with that sort of rigor where you're getting precedent, you're, you're understanding people, you're, you're talking to other groups around the project, you're getting the hang of what everybody wants. But then you put everything in the middle of the, of the table, if you like, and you get some really clever 
uh, interesting, imaginative people from all walks of life, whether they're within the practice or outside, or whether they've got anything to do with the with the the project or not. And you have a brilliant session of there's all the information. Now what are we going to do? And it, you get this uh, ammunition dump of information. Somewhere along the line, from sometimes some of the most unlikely quarters, you will get a spark of information of, of um, an idea which sets the whole thing off. And I think in that way, you avoid that horrendous project which sets off at the slightly the wrong angle. And the further you go along the process, the bigger the angle gets. And you start thinking, oh, God, we we set off at the wrong angle. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you do that first bit properly... That that it's an intelligent way to do it. Obviously, um, you don't jump to a conclusion, and then you get a, a situation where there's a story to be told. You've got all this information. You've got a spark. The story starts off on the right leg, and then when you're standing up in front of the local authority, and somebody says, "I'm sorry, I don't like it." You can at least explain how you got there, um, and it all works famously, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, let's go back into what you were discussing with relation to how the architectural industry as a whole has really, you could say, stagnated in its creative process. What other concerns or worries do you have about the industry and architectural practice? I think it's the position of the architect, actually. Um, uh, In these difficult times, we as a profession, we've all done it. We will do more or less anything for nothing. It's beginning to erode our position in the team as well as our fees. So I I find... um, uh, the lack of respect uh, within the profession for architects uh, across the building industry, I mean, is is a big issue. I'm sure uh, older architects, or perhaps they're not around anymore because it's that long ago, but architects were often seen as the leader of the team and uh, were were respected and welcomed on site and welcomed to, to meetings. I think a lot of clients see the architect as a sort of necessary evil. And uh, I think our position in the building team or the design team uh, has been eroded because we've allowed, first of all, fees to go down. Uh, therefore, we're not valued as much as we should be. Um, so that that's an area of concern. And um, I know it's an area of concern for most architects. Um, our position there is is not as it should have been. So there's a bit of a change there. But there are a number of sort of bits of high ground that we could take uh, to ensure that we are at least uh, central to the design development of any project, one of which is the environmental issue, the well-being issue, that we should make that our own and um, and, and make sure that is inherent in our in all our designs and therefore we become slightly more integral to the to the process rather than just a, a, an add-on if we're not careful. So you think that sustainability could be one approach, but are there any other solutions or ways forward to hopefully stop this in its track what you were explaining the the oversight of architects within the project teams well the interesting one actually is um going back to the human spirit human nature if you could analyze uh human nature and human spirit in a sort of more scientific way and a lot of people in the building industry are really only turned on by facts and figures if you could say if i if if my architect designs this building in such a way, I will benefit from that as a developer, for instance. I will get more people coming through the door. I'll get more people staying there. 
I'll have more people staying there longer, so they'll buy more stuff. Um, if you can actually put that together in a digital way or, or an analytical way and, and analyze almost the human reaction to your a sort of digital twinning thing, which I know you're interested in, it's a sort of, you, you can analyze, I'm sure you can analyze human behavior and prove that certain colors are beneficial. Obviously, that's been done quite regularly, but actually people's reaction to spaces and and and, and the environments that we, we create and then prove to somebody that that, you know, an enjoyable space is a valuable space. You know, uh, we did uh, Greenwich years ago, you know, the supermarket at Greenwich, we got onto the Sterling Prize shortlist and um, it had daylight for the first time. Well, not for the first time, but one of the first supermarkets to have daylight north lit roof coming in and and the dwell time in that place went up because people were happy to be in that quite big space um with daylight coming in which meant they stayed there longer spent more money and actually had a better vision or feeling when they thought about the store so they'd come back uh, that's quite difficult to prove to the money men and the people who are putting a program together but it, it is actually quite an important um, issue to get the human nature bit right and to prove it so to prove it you would need some of these specialist tools to actually analyze how human beings react to certain spaces. And that is now possible. Um, and I, I think we should be pushing that at long last. We have some way of proving it. That's great for me. So a more empirical approach actually to mm. the decision. Yeah. Yes, it's quite a, it's a bit of an anathema, isn't it? Because you, you can talk about the art and the fluffy side of it all with with instinct and, um, you know, a natural way of, of designing, but to, you, you still have to prove that that works. So you can, the mixture of art and science, which was always connected until the French decided to um, uh, divide it up, um, was is actually quite essential. It, it goes, you know, hand in glove. There to, to to have something that's lovely, but you can prove that it, it's lovely for a reason and that it works is a great opportunity for everybody. And uh, um, that's something that I think could change. And so, finally, for aspiring architects or designers or let's say creative people or innovators, what advice would you give to them when? choosing to enter the field and choosing to make an impact in their fields or their careers? Well, it's a bit like the ammunition thing I mentioned before. Really think about whether you are an architect or not before you get into it, because um, and it does offer opportunities for different types of architects. I wouldn't say that. If you're looking to take the traditional route, which is a creative person who understands how things are put together and there's a mixture of art and science, I think you still have to say, to yourself is this actually me have i got a creative bone in my body i've done a bit of examining up and down the country on a couple of universities and you do wonder why some people have decided to become architects uh, it, it's it's a lovely idea most people as far as i can make out have considered becoming an architect um uh, at some point in their their early careers and it, it's a sort of it's got a good reputation it's got a good um pedigree almost it's not quite as easy as it sounds in terms of for anybody coming in i i think it's not i don't know i i just decry the fact that people don't necessarily go in it for, go into it for the right reasons but if you're in it i would be and i i, I would be pushing probably harder if i could go through it all again if you like for For, for, for standing by my own beliefs um, and starving for my art and doing only the things that I truly 
uh, believed in. And I, I think um, it, I think the, play, the time is really ripe for somebody to change the direction of architecture at the moment. And it's as I said in, throughout this lecture, it's it's been a sort of uh, this 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 approach has been around for for years and years. It's time for a change. So I, the encouraging thing is really stick your neck out and go for it because uh, there aren't big names coming through that have to be big names but there's not a movement coming through that changes what we've always done and I, I think that the ingredients are all there it's the right time you got happy you got the happiness and well-being you got the environmental side i think decoration color all those things that appeal to the human spirit have been ignored for so long if you picked up some of these threads and really pushed it hard as a young architect i think you could you could start to make a difference and um that's what i would recommend if you do make the, the disastrous step of becoming an architect <laughs> that's not quite if you if you do make a well-considered step of becoming an architect there's you know it, it's it's great time to do that back if you're in the middle of the 50s not much of a chance but now definitely so where could our listeners now find out more about your work and some of the resources of what you explained with Butterfly House and other exciting projects? Well, I, I think the best route, probably the pure stuff that I've been trying to get across is, is on an Instagram account, which is just under my name, Laurie Chetwood. So that's, that's quite, a, I think it's a pretty good site to have a look at and you can, you'll, you'll get the essence that there's a sort of mixture of art, science, architecture, um, and it's it sort of does truly give or put across what I've been talking about today. That's probably the best one. We do have obviously Chetwood's uh, website. That's going to be more commercial. There is an element in there of, of uh, under studio of, of art and uh, art and science mixture. Um, so so that's probably the best thing. I mean, if you put the name into onto the internet, you get a few other things like some of the, the gardens we've designed and so forth. So uh, that's probably the best place to find it all. Thank you for tuning in to listen to Beyond BIM podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more from our latest episodes, then you can visit Beyond BIM, which is available on SoundCloud and iTunes and all the other major podcast providers.